0: Episode 1431 of Effectively Wild, the baseball's podcast from Fangraphs.com. Brought to you by our Patreon supporters, I'm Sam Miller of ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hey, Ben. Hi. The other day I was watching a game in which, so do you know who Devin Smeltzer is? I know the name. All right. Devin Smeltzer is a uh, rookie, 23-year-old pitcher with the Minnesota Twins. He is a lefty who throws, uh, in the game that I was watching, he threw, you know, like, high 80s, low 90s. Minnesota was doing a bullpen game, more or less. It was the first game of a doubleheader against Cleveland. And Smelter had kind of gotten through two and a half innings, and then he ran into some trouble. And so the bases were loaded. The Twins were up two to nothing, and Carlos Santana was up. And so the previous batter, Smelter, had gotten ahead 0-2 on Oscar Mercado. But he doesn't really, at least in the game that I was watching, he didn't really have a strikeout pitch. He was just, you know, like he's the kind of guy who works around the zone and mixes pitches and, you know, gets batters off balance. But like, you know, he was throwing 90 miles an hour and he would try to get the he tried to get Mercado to to, to chase and Mercado wouldn't chase and he ended up walking him. and So the bases were loaded. Two, two run game, bases loaded. Cleveland's, you know, best hitter coming up, arguably Carlos Santana. Santana better from the, the right side. I mean, it's a very scary situation. And so Smeltzer gets ahead of him one-two on a couple of called strikes. And then again, he you know, he just can't, he, he doesn't have a put away pitch. So Santana, obviously very patient hitter, takes a ball, fouls one off, takes a ball, fouls one off. And so now it's a 3-2 count, bases loaded. In a bullpen game, and I was just screaming, "Strategy, strategy! This is <laughs> yeah, it! This is that's the, the moment!" Yeah. <laughs> like, and and in fact, I think that no matter what happened, I can't remember. I I didn't see if anybody was was warming yet, but Smeltzer did not face another batter after Santana. I don't think he would have faced another batter after Santana. Uh. Um,
1: Missed opportunity.
0: Right. The next batter was Puig, who's a righty. And so if you're going to replace him, which they were, he didn't face another batter as it was. I don't think anything that would have happened would have caused him to throw more than one more pitch. Uh, in that situation and uh, they could have brought in a righty I don't know if it would have been even doubly effective to now force Santana to also turn around in the the wanted bat so he's Mm. facing a pitcher he's never seen and he's also has to now change from from batting from the right side to batting from the left side but they didn't do it they left and it was so terrifying I did not (laughs) think he had any chance of getting Santana out on this pitch and uh, he threw a, you know, he threw, he threw a pitch basically right down the middle and Santana hit 105 mile an hour line drive that the shortstop made a diving catch for and ended the inning. Ugh. I did not feel like that <laughs> justified the decision. Uh, but they uh, they did get out of it and they, they did win the game two to nothing.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, good for them, I guess. Although I'm sorry that they were rewarded for taking the coward's way out and not going with the strategy. <laughs> I didn't know like that, that, that this happened, moment. but yeah, yeah, now I'm upset <laughs> retroactively. Yeah. That's the perfect spot. I really do keep expecting someone to do it. One of these days, it's only a matter of time until someone does the real mid plate appearance pitching change. Maybe they're saving it for the playoffs. Maybe that was the twins thinking. We don't want to. Give away our strategy in the regular season. We'll wait for when it really counts.
0: Could be. By the way, (laughs) speaking of uh, Cleveland, somebody pointed out that uh, another good answer to the guy you can't believe has as many home runs as he does is Roberto Mm. Perez.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right.
0: Now has 23 home runs, he's 30 (laughs) years old. He had 21 career home runs coming into this as a 30-year-old, coming into this season. He was, in fact, 30 before opening day. So he was already 30, had 21 career home runs, has 23 this year, had two last year.
1: <laughs> yep. And Eugenio Suarez is up to 47 now. Yeah,
0: and Jorge <laughs> Soler is up to 44
1: I know uh, Suarez might just lead the major leagues in home runs this year. That could yeah, happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't I, I don't I don't I'm not as as hot on Eugenio Suarez being a, a strange home run guy. As, it's pretty as you strange.
1: Are. I mean, he had 34 last year, so it's not quite <laughs> Do you
0: do you remember that before the season began I we talked about the prop bets? in Vegas, and one of them was that Eugenio Suarez was yeah. more likely to win the MVP award or as likely to win it as Christian Yelich.
1: Yeah, that's right. Is uh, it conceivable that he will finish ahead of Christian Yelich? <laughs> well, he's definitely hit more homers.
0: He has hit more homers, yep. So, yeah, uh, anyway, to, uh, Roberto Perez. Keep him coming. No, don't keep him coming. Uh, Brett Gardner, I think, is now up to 25. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Anyway, Jorge Soler is about to pass Mike Trout, which we'll if. talk about yeah. later. I, uh, as you know, I've been, I don't know, for some reason, I've been really hung up on six Homer games. I, like, yeah. there's something I've been trying to decode about how fun facts work in a home run era. Because uh, like Eugenio Suarez Hitting 47 is interesting It's surprising because it's Eugenio Suarez But it's also only 47 homers But then the way that individual home run achievements Cluster to create home run fun facts Has been something that has been Kind of, I've had trouble Wrapping my head around it And so I just, every time someone A team hits 6 homers, I find it very interesting And so I looked And so just to put into perspective I don't even know if this puts it into perspective But I looked at how many, so okay, so home Home runs are up since 2014, which is when they kind of reached their, their low point. Home runs this year are up like uh, about 50%. So about 50% home runs are up. So games with one home run in them, one or more, so one, two, three, four, five, those are up, of course, because we know home runs are up. So those are up 30%, right? Mm-hmm. Games with two or more are up 80%. Games with three or more are up are up 180 percent. So you huh. see how this is like the, yeah. the like the cluster is is like the thing, right? So three or more is uh, is from from in 2014 there were 292. This year there are going to be about 820. So almost triple. Games with four or more are up 300 <laughs> percent, a little more than 300 percent. So they're going to end up quadrupling from 79 to 320. Uh, <laughs> and then <laughs> games with five or more are up from 25 to 107, so up 366%. Games with six or more are up sevenfold. So they have gone up more than 600%, and games with seven or more, there were zero. There have been 11 this year, and there have been five with eight or more this year. Now, to put the seven or more in perspective, as of 1975, there had been 11 such games in Major League history. And there have been 11 this year. And they're on pace to be 12. Anyway, I looked that up. Now you've yeah. heard me read it.
1: Well, you've been tweeting about the losing games with six homers, right? Right.
0: Uh, yeah. Four of those. Yeah. <laughs> Four games where a team has hit six homers and lost, which is uh, like many, many decades have passed where where that did not happen that many times
1: yeah is that that's the record right is that the most homers yeah allowed the to, the, yeah.
0: the previous record had been two so it it wasn't totally unheard of but mm-hmm. that was the record yeah mm-hmm.
1: and has a team ever allowed seven homers in one or is six the max
0: uh seven homers in and one let me see that's that's a good question <laughs> uh home runs turns out there are three games in which a team has allowed seven home runs and one.
1: Ah, okay.
0: Once in 2016, once in 2004, and once in 1999. It has not right. happened this year because this mm-hmm. year is not exceptional, I guess, as it turns out.
1: <laughs> All right, cool. So we've been talking about some purported fun facts that we agreed probably weren't actually as fun as advertised lately. So I wanted to pass along one that I actually did enjoy. This was as you probably saw The Diamondbacks won a game In which they had only one base runner Which was the first time that this Had ever happened at least in a game On record and I think that's pretty cool. This was what I think it was Saturday's game, and the Diamondbacks had come into it having lost six in a row. They've really been struggling. Their offense has disappeared. Over the last 30 days, they have the third worst offense in baseball ahead of only the Giants and the Rangers. So they're not scoring a lot these days, and they certainly didn't score a lot on that day, but they scored just enough. They scored one run while Merrill Cully pitched very well for them. It was not a home run, surprisingly, you would think. It especially in this era, if you were going to win a game with one base runner, it would be a solo shot. But it was not. It was a triple by Nick Ahmed, and he scored, and that was that. The game took two hours and 15 minutes. And one thing that stood out to me in this game, this was a a win against the Reds, by the way, but Gerard Dyson had only two plate appearances in this game, and he started the game. He started in right field. He played the entire game, and he made only two plate appearances. The even more surprising part of that is that he was batting eighth, which makes it even more unlikely compared to say a ninth place hitter especially in another league where you don't have the pitcher pitching the whole game and and batting the whole game. So I looked this up, this is not unprecedented, not like the team winning with one base runner, but it is very unusual. It's happened 38 times in the modern era. It's happened only three times with an 8th place hitter. Dyson is the third 8th place hitter to do it. Mark Lemke was the first in 1992. Jordan Schaefer did it also in 2012. And both of those games were also, of course, 1-0 wins in which those teams had one hit apiece, although they did have other base runners. And both of them were also games where the one hit was a solo homer, as you would expect. So Dyson did it, and you may have noticed I said 38 guys have done it in the modern era. Three guys had done it batting eighth. That means there is someone unaccounted for. There is actually a sixth place hitter who did it. But under strange circumstances, so Rich Audet, who is best known, I think, for his famous bat flip in a Triple A game in 1994, in 1993. He had two plate appearances in a full game, batting sixth, but he batted out of order one time, and so that plate appearance did not count. He was removed from the bases after singling, so that's how that happened. But what Dyson did is almost as unusual as what the Diamondbacks did as a team, so that was a weird one.
0: What a fool.
1: <laughs> Rich Day. Yeah. Yeah,
0: very foolish. i yeah that a great fun fact already great fun fact previously I don't know if you remember this but about a month ago the Giants and the Cubs played a game that was only 26 batters so this you've described a 25 mm. batter game which is the theoretical minimum that you can send up in a full nine inning game. And so the 25-man threshold, as you noted, has, has only been done honestly, uh, in honest ways, three times in the past century. So this is notable. But even the 26-man game, which I, I was surprised. Somebody emailed us as soon as it happened just to head off the fun fact querying. <laughs> I had expected it to be somewhat more common than it was. And I did not realize how yeah. rare it was. There have been only 47 games in the past century of of 26 batters and i don't know i would have guessed i had seen one before but i went and my dad and i started talking about this and wondered if we'd seen it because we we both i think thought that we must have seen it it doesn't feel like something you wouldn't have seen and yeah you know there were a couple games in my uh peak childhood viewing of a specific team that might have happened but it is very rare i was surprised how rare every every couple years that's right great great fun fact though Yes. All right. 25. Whew. <laughs> yeah. Boy, how did the run score? What happened?
1: Nick Ahmed tripled, and actually, Gerard Dyson drove him home with a sack fly. So, although Dyson came to the plate twice, he actually only had one official at bat. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I, I bet if we looked through these 57 games, I guess 61 games, I bet there's at least one interesting story in here. But yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> All right. Let's see. Anything else?
1: Well, I don't know. I'm kind of waiting for games that are in progress as we are speaking right now to possibly say something about pennant races. So maybe by the end of this episode, I will be able to say that. So let's talk about what we came to talk about. Well, not yet. Not yet.
0: I got one more to go. So I don't know if you saw this, but this was a question that was going around of a question. Well, it's a question from a job posting that the Philadelphia Phillies posted for a quantitative analyst. And one of the questions is this. Interested applicants, in fact, maybe the only question, I don't know, maybe the only question. <laughs> Interested applicants should submit both their resume and an answer to the following question. So, be I don't know, have you opened it? Don't open it yet. Have you oh, opened it?
1: No. Not All yet. right.
0: Just, just curious, if I only give you one question to ask prospective candidates. And this is like, you, you know, you're probably going to get a 1000 applicants. And so this is not going to be the one question you would ask somebody that you bring in for an interview, or even that you would maybe ask the follow up to this, say, like the 15 that you shortlist or anything like that. You got one question to filter out 900 or so. What question would do you think you'd ask? And and would it actually be the question that I just asked you? Would that be your question? What <laughs> what would you ask you one. if you were applying for an analytical job in the Phillies front office?
1: If baseball were different, how different would it be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a tough one. I'm thinking of like questions you hear tech companies ask, like how many McDonald's are there in the world or mm-hmm. how many things would fit inside another thing or something like that. But for a baseball-specific job, I don't even, would you ask a baseball-specific question? I don't know whether you would. I guess that would make some sense just to kind of narrow things (laughs) down a little bit. But if you want to know how someone thinks about things, then there's a whole world of possibilities out there. You don't necessarily have to ask them a baseball question.
0: All right, let's pause this real quick and do an email that we got a week ago, which is somewhat (laughs) on the same topic. All right, this is from Nathan, who writes... Today, Guy Fieri tweeted his support for 2020 draftee Spencer Torkelson from ASU. And that tweet specifically reads, Congrats to my buddy Spencer. Keep an eye on this guy. He's going to go big. Okay? (laughs) My question is simple. If you were to draft a player in the first round based on the opinion of someone not employed or working for a baseball team or for any other sport for that matter, a non-sport person, who would you pick? And Nathan followed up because he was very nervous that we were going to cheat. And so he said, you can't pick like a baseball writer or anything like that. Uh-huh. So I intend that to include sports writers as well. So I think Nathan really wants somebody who is specifically non-sports. So who would you, whose opinion might actually conceivably make you choose somebody in the first round <laughs> who is a non-sports person? What would you look for for that recommendation?
1: So, someone who's not involved in baseball at all, I probably don't care about their evaluation of the player's performance or his. On field talent or skill, right? Because I I probably have baseball people who are better qualified to answer that question and data that can answer that question. So this would be more of a makeup thing, right? Like someone basically having a professional recommendation for someone, a character reference or something, right? Which I don't know that that would even sway me all that much, but that's. The only thing I can think of that would actually like if if someone said, yeah, this potential draftee, he saved my whole family's life and he he jumped into uh, freezing like Harry water. Hallman. Yeah, right. He, like Harry Hellman jumped into freezing water. He saved my life. He, he braved some extraordinary circumstance and the pressure was extraordinary and he rose to the occasion and he was selfless and he acted courageously. That. Would probably be the, the uh, thing y- that could, but yeah, uh,
0: you're not. That's not a person, though. It's that's a, an like endorsement. You're asking it's... for a specific. You, in this case, you're asking for a specific piece of data about the person. I feel like that's cheating. You're supposed <laughs> to ask. You're supposed to to say who as a source would be the most convincing to you, not what they would tell you.
1: So I'm just saying the person whose life was saved by. <laughs> okay, <them>. the per- <laughs> <All right. laughs> but I can't think of like a celebrity endorsement. That would actually make me more likely to like what would that celebrity be able to tell me about this person? Are you more interested in Spencer Torkelson <laughs> because Guy Fieri said, like, if Guy Fieri said he's a good cook, that probably wouldn't <laughs> do <too> much. <laughs> that'd really. be the opposite. You'd <laughs> <He'd> probably then <laughs> be less likely to have him be your chef, but like, I just, I can't think of like someone in a non-baseball field telling me something about a baseball player other than just how that kid got to that point and how hard he worked and just what a good guy he is, which I don't know that that would actually make me take him in the first round unless I liked him for other reasons too.
0: Yeah. I I don't think there is anybody in the first round. I think that Nathan set the bar too high, but who might, you know bump somebody up a draft list. I think it, it, you need to think well there's two different scenarios where I could imagine a, a non-baseball person being brought into this. And so in one case I'll just I'll just skip. My answer is Michelle Obama and the <laughs> I was reason that, say Barack
1: Obama. <laughs> The reason that i picked
0: Michelle Obama is because she is she is not a frivolous person. She is not, like a lot of us just like to say stuff, you know? Like a lot of us, like if you're playing poker too, this happens where you know that like the odds are not very good that you're going to get the spade that you need. And yet you just like, you you can't really, you, you can't contain yourself and you just go for it. You just keep on calling. And then you, when you don't get the card, you feel like a, a sort of a dummy. But like your impulses are stronger than your your like your rational side sometimes. And I feel like that is what happens a lot when people speak. They just want to say the thing. It seems fun to say the thing. This comes up all the time in this podcast. And sometimes we edit it out because <laughs> you say the thing and you go, well, that wasn't actually that fun to say. And now everybody's going to hate me, but you want to say it. It sounds provocative. It sounds like you just, you just blurt it out. You know, you just blurt out the thing that you want to say out loud. And So Guy Fieri to me, and this is probably not fair, there's a probably to some degree a managed persona that he has created. But that persona is is like the epitome of the just blurted out guy, right? Mm -hmm. Like he is blurting things out. Like sometimes he just blurts out food. And so when (laughs) Guy Fieri tells you something, you don't think that there's anything behind that. You just Mm -hmm. think he's just saying stuff. And of course, you wouldn't take his opinion on baseball for anything because he's not a baseball person. And given that anybody who answers this is not going to be a baseball person... The data that they give you is basically nothing. The only data that might be something is the data point that they are speaking up on behalf, like that they have chosen to say something out loud. And for the overwhelming majority of people, that is no data at all. The overwhelming majority of people will say anything out loud at any time. They just want to speak or they just want to be heard. But then you take somebody who is very, who is not frivolous, who you know makes their words matter, who makes their the things that they speak matter, and the very fact that they are choosing to tell you something seems like a, a significant data point. So yeah. if, if Michelle Obama came to me and said that Spencer Torkelson, <laughs> trust me on this, I would yeah. think, wow, you got up today, yeah, and you whatever you you put aside all the other things you could be doing with your important life and you shared your opinion about a baseball player there is something there like that yeah. is that is like you know if somebody comes back from the future and tells you something is going to happen and you should really like not get on the train today mm-hmm. you'd be like all right i don't know i don't know what this person knows about the train schedule but the fact that he came all this way to tell me not to get on the train is pretty convincing and so In that case, I would say that that's my pick. Now, there's another scenario here, which is that you maybe you actually have somebody who is not a sports person, but for some reason has been tasked with finding a draft pick for you. And you have to rely on somebody who is not a sports person to do this, in which case then you want to figure out, okay, well, whose opinion could I trust despite no expertise? And so for that, I'm going to say my my friend Jim who is the best newspaper reporter that I've ever, I've ever seen, I've ever been around, and who had a, a total ability to become an expert on something very quickly because he knew exactly—like, he, there was nothing— he had no nervousness about calling exactly the right people and asking exactly the right questions. And if you gave Jim—I I swear to you, if you gave Jim a 40-minute deadline and said, I need a draft pick— he would say in what sport and you'd say baseball and he'd say, how do, you, how do they play? And you'd explain <laughs> baseball and then he'd be like, but you got to hurry. You only have 37 minutes left. And he would, in, in 37 minutes, he would give you a first round draft pick with no internet access and somehow he would just do it. And so the ability to get information in any field, to process it, to uh, have a sort of a, a br- Mike Pesca would be another good one except that he's a baseball guy already but like if for instance i had to know like what like if i had if i were if i had been in a boat crash and i had three antibiotics and i didn't know which one to take i feel like and i couldn't ask a doctor i feel like i'd ask mike pesca and (laughs) i'd be like mike go get help and two minutes later he'd come back and he'd tell me which bottle to, to to use and so in the same way my friend jim
1: yeah. I almost said Barack Obama, but now that I think about it, he puts out an annual list of things that he recommends songs he likes, and TV shows, and books, and movies. And right. I'm sure that he actually likes them all and he's considered his choices extensively, but he's not someone who only makes a very rare recommendation. He will recommend things. So he maybe is, it doesn't. Yeah carry quite as much weight.
0: That's right. We can all think of things that he blurted out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so you want someone who is just known for not endorsing things, not taking things lightly, maybe even someone who is difficult to please like maybe like Robert Mueller. Maybe you'd want Robert Mueller to because he won't express an opinion on anything <laughs> unless he has written a full report on it. And even then he he will not usually. So if Robert Mueller came out and said that someone should be a first-round draft pick, I'd assume that he had thoroughly vetted him and that he is making an exception to express an opinion about something.
0: All right. So Interested applicants should submit both their resume and an answer to the following question: Do you have a question, or should we just should I tell you what theirs was
1: I mean probably I'd just ask something like you know what's the market inefficiency or whatever, which is like a very basic question but A, you can filter out a lot of people who say something extremely obvious that shows that they either haven't kept up with the research or they don't know what's going on in baseball or they're just not thinking very originally, didn't put much time into this. And also, I guess to think of this somewhat cynically, you get a lot of free ideas. (laughs) You can probably only hire one person, but you get everyone's best idea for how baseball teams should win, arguably the most important thing that they are bringing to your team. So uh, you get a lot of ideas that way, and most of them would be useless, but someone might say, hey, make mid-plate appearance pitching changes, and you'd say, we should hire that guy.
0: Or not. (laughs) Or not. What's your second best idea would be your second question. And if his second best idea is no good, then you just take the idea.
1: How does Guy Fury know Spencer Torkelson, by the way? I can't figure that out. I've been Googling and all the articles that aggregated this tweet were like, we don't really know why he's recommending Spencer Torkelson. It's not like they went to the same school or something. I guess they're from the same area evidently Guy Fieri is in Santa Rosa and Spencer Torkelson's from Petaluma. So maybe he's like a family friend or something. Who knows? But very strange.
0: That's, I mean, that is really, that's a small community up there. Like those towns are all- (laughs) Everyone knows
1: Guy Fieri. Everyone knows everyone. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) It is crazy how many, every, I have never met a person from Santa Rosa or Petaluma who doesn't know Joey Gomes, for instance, (laughs) Johnny Gomes' Uh brother. It's just a, they all know, I don't know. They all know everybody up there. (laughs) Okay. So what's the Phillies question? The Phillies question is, suppose you could trade your top pitching prospect currently in a lower minor league level. By the way, my question would have been, uh, what is one mistake that we have made and what mistake did we make in making it?
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: Suppose you could trade your top pitching prospect currently in a lower minor league level for a young all-star position player currently in the major leagues. How would you decide whether to make the trade? And then you have a 250 word limit. And they do give you a tip. There's no right or wrong answer.
1: (laughs) Well they actually put tip. Isn't it? I mean, that seems obvious, right? How could there be a it's a pretty involved (laughs) question. There can't just be one answer in 250 words. Anyway, huh. Okay, so now I'm looking, it says responses are used to get some insight into how you approach problem solving and baseball in general. So yeah, 250 words. That's You could write a giant essay on this with all kinds of analysis and data. So I guess it's nice that they limited it to 250 words because they're not paying these people to answer this question for them. That seems like a, a good question. You could probably find out a lot about a person based on how they answer that. Uh-huh
0: yeah I mean, there's a lot of information about the situation, about the context that's left out, and so you probably learn a lot about the person just by what sort of details they fill in uh mm-hmm. what what sort of details they fabricate yeah in order to make this more because otherwise yeah. it's totally unanswerable, right? Mm-hmm. You could not possibly answer this question unless you knew more about the teams involved, so you just essentially are forced to make some assumptions about. Well, are they the Phillies, uh, for instance? So uh, how would you answer this question? Huh.
1: Well, I, I guess I would need to know. I mean, it is kind of difficult to answer without the specifics because it's like, well, who's the pitching prospect and who's the young all-star position player? But I guess, you know, if I had more than 250 words and I really wanted to get in depth, I would— do a study, right? And I would look at like the average young all-star position player. So I'd look at, I don't know, 25 and under position players who made the all-star team over the past 20 years or whatever. And then I'd collect every team's top pitching prospect during that time too and I'd look at how many war or whatever those pitching prospects went on to generate and how many war the position players went on to generate and maybe some salary considerations in there too and then you could come up with an actual answer based on data based on past players who had done that so I suppose with 250 words I would just essentially say that that's what I would do, more or less.
0: So you're really counting on your resume to set you apart?
1: <laughs> not a good answer, huh?
0: Well, it's just it's the obvious answer. It's the answer yeah. that wouldn't would not 400 people answer it basically that way? Yeah,
1: I guess so. All right. I mean, I'm, I've had two seconds to think of this, so maybe I would come up with something better. But that's like basically the the standard approach that you would take. And yes, of course, you would want to say something to differentiate yourself from everyone else who's gonna say that, but you also don't want to say something that differentiates you in a bad way because your idea is worse than the obvious idea. There's a reason why the obvious idea is obvious. It it might be a good one. So I don't know. Do you have a, a better off the cuff answer?
0: Yeah, I mean I would form I would probably Create a panel with, um, my, you know, maybe myself.
1: I'd ask my, Guy Fieri, honestly. My friend,
0: <laughs> I was going to say my friend Jim and Michelle Obama. <laughs> yeah. All right. What would I do? I don't know. I don't think that I would say what you said. I think that the two most important questions to answer for a team in this situation are: one, what is our, how are we going to define happiness for the organization right now? And if you think that, you know, if you're in a situation where uh, it really makes sense to go for it, for instance, then I don't even think it's that hard mm-hmm. of a of a question. If you think that you're, I mean, like, I mean, a, a a pretty important question is how long do I think I am likely to be employed with the franchise? <laughs> am I about to be fired? Well, I don't know. If I was about <laughs> to be fired, then I might go ahead and make the trade. But I probably wouldn't um, say
1: that in the interview, answer. Although I don't know, maybe its honesty would be appealing.
0: I just think that it you have to define what success is going to be for you in that moment. And I think that it's hard to to uh i mean like i don't really how am i gonna put this it's it's hard to you're right it's very hard to say off the top yeah. of your head
1: because my answer is generic but i feel like it's it's sort of cheating to ask for specifics or say that because yes obviously if like the team is trying to contend right now or the team is rebuilding and contending years in the future sure that has an impact. Or if the the young all-star position player actually isn't good. I mean, maybe he shouldn't have made the all-star team. Maybe he yeah. only made it because he was the only all-star on that team and he's not actually good and he's having a weird BABIP year and uh, he's got off-the-field issues and the top pitching prospect is Steven Strasberg or something. He's like the the best pitching prospect to come along in decades. Yeah. So, of course, those things would affect your answer, but... Without knowing the specifics, and we could just say, "Well, it depends on the specifics," but that's not a great answer either. Probably.
0: Yeah, you're right, Ben. This is tough. You're right; mm-hmm. it's very tough. My my first start at this was very weak. It was <laughs> I would have deleted it all entirely. I don't even know. <laughs> I don't I don't know what I said, and I don't know where it was going. All right, here's another one. Then here's <laughs> my other here's my other thing. You should be thinking of is, you should be trying to figure out whether you like the player that you're acquiring more than the other team likes them and whether you like the player that you would be trading away less than the other team likes them. I think there should be enough room. I think there should be enough disagreement in terms of player evaluation, but particularly these days where you're potentially going to be doing a lot of work of player development. You're you're forecasting. I mean, for each of these players, you're forecasting, you know, somewhere between five and nine years of future development, of aging, of growth. Um, and the, the margins around what each player could become or the bars around what each player could become are so massive that there ought to be a lot of, there's probably a lot of space between what you think each player is going to do or that you could do with them and what the other team thinks they're going to do. And if there is a trade to be made then it is, it, sh- it is probably going to be the case that the best trades are going to be made between a team that is acquiring a player that they like more than the other team likes and that is giving up a player that the other team likes more than they like. Otherwise, there's some sort of inefficiency happening here. Now, I mean, obviously, there's the competitive windows, and some teams will trade anything future for something today and vice versa, um, and a lot of times it's about contracts. But when you're talking about eight-, nine-year projections, eight-, nine-year windows for development and for full actualization of these players it seems to me that there you should somehow be able to figure out like is this player better to me than he is to them because otherwise you're just moving around like you're just moving things around you mm-hmm. you really ought to like when i um, like when you're trading cards as a kid with your friend it's really nice when you collect all of a player and then the other your other friend collects all of a different player because then it just, it makes it so clear. Like you want that player more than the other person does. You already have 200 will Clarks and you want to get 400 and he already has 200 Nolan Ryan's and he wants to get 400. You just know for a fact that everybody's going to be happier with the other person's card. And uh, so I don't, it's tough because you, I don't know how you figure out what the other 29 teams think. But in a perfect world, like, that would be a great thing to figure, you know, if you could somehow figure out how much does every team like our players and how much does every team like their players. And then you could just go and look and say, oh, well, I like this player more than they do. I want to <laughs> get him. And they like
1: this player more than I do. And you could go get him. So you're suggesting that you hack the other teams? I database. am maybe. I did. Yes, I did. I thought about that. I did think about
0: that as I was saying it. That's uh-huh. right.
1: Yeah, I might steer clear of you, just
0: just to be safe. I didn't. I didn't think that. I. I didn't think about doing it. I thought about the implication of what I was saying.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I. Uh, <laughs> do, uh, yeah. Do you? Do you and Jesse? How do you and Jesse decide where to? To Like, say, I guess you just go to the diner. Never mind. How do you you decide when you disagree about what to do or where to go or what to eat or what to whatever? How do you decide? Well,
1: we don't disagree very often, which is nice. I think that's why we make a good couple. But when we do, I I guess maybe you kind of add up like a relationship scorecard about like who's gotten their way. More often lately. And oh, wow. That's a I'm, very
0: interesting way to
1: do it. I mean, I'm not saying that we like <laughs> make a list and, and check off, okay, I'm doing this for you, so you owe me the next time we do this, but... But I will keep that in my own mind. I, I might not even say that. But if it's like Jesse wants to do something and she did something with me that she wasn't so keen on recently, then I'll feel perhaps more obligated than usual to reciprocate. So I guess that's kind of a, a mental calculus that I do. I don't mm-hmm. know if she does it.
0: So the, what we do, what my wife and I do is the thing where you you each think of a number between 1 and 10 of how much you want. Like each alternative, so if, uh-huh. it's, if it's between a and b, then you figure, well, I really want a i'm I'm a nine. like I care about this one and for for b i wouldn't be that unhappy but like it's maybe a 5 or a 6 and then the other person does theirs and then you add it up and whatever gets the higher score and mm. as long as you're doing this in good faith
1: <laughs> right you have then, to trust each other not right. to... <laughs> but okay.
0: the it's a pretty i mean it's a pretty simple concept that mm-hmm. you know we all we all think about all the time when we're trying to decide like what's the best thing for the world it's like at what creates the most cumulative happiness and it's hard because if you don't have that good faith which you know teams are competitive and they're in zero sum pursuits and they're the GMs are trying to rip off the other one if they can. Although they say the best trade is one that makes both teams happy and that's true, but really they would like to make uh, to have a trade that makes them twice as happy and you not happy at all. So I don't know how you do that, but I guess that's what I guess what I'm saying is you can't know what the other team thinks about any uh, any other player, but you do have a sort of a general sense of like what the conventional wisdom is about a player. You do know, like, okay, well, where was he picked in the draft and how long ago? Where does he rank on, on um, you know, all these public prospect lists? What, if he's a major leaguer, you know, what is what is his war and what do I think a typical projection system is likely to produce? And how much do I know that other teams, you know, sort of uh, adhere to those kind of projection systems? And And then you just sort of figure out, well, do I vary? from those? Do I, am I different about them? And if you think that you're, you know, that you're off the conventional wisdom on a player one way or the other, that's probably the time that you should move.
1: And there also are times where you should probably make the move, even if you're not especially high or low on someone in the deal, right? You like, you just need that player. You need to fill a hole and you'll pay the market rate for that guy. What if
0: the right answer is just do I have anybody good at the position of the all-star player yeah, that I'm that's, acquiring? Yeah,
1: that's a consideration too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I might be uh, overthinking this.
1: I found a Phillies job listing from last year for another position where they <laughs> ask a, a similar question. Okay. Same tip about there not being a right or wrong answer. Same 250-word limit. This one is, how would you decide whether a minor league position player prospect is ready to be promoted to the major leagues? Oh, Maybe I'd it's... Maybe it's the same. Maybe it's the <laughs> same this, young. This position was a player. year ago. No, this was last year. <laughs> now, now he's an all. star Now he's an all star. <laughs> he
0: was. He was ready.
1: They're actually asking about specific players, and they're just trying to figure out whether they should make a trade or not. <laughs> this this question seems a little bit easier, less nebulous. There's maybe fewer considerations here because you're talking about one guy and whether he's ready or not and it doesn't depend on some other player in your evaluation of him as well
0: yeah and this one too you can really um lean on the expertise of other people you're not yeah you know you're i mean unless you're applying for director of player development in which case even then you're gonna like rely on a lot of expert people who work for you you're gonna ask his manager. Mm-hmm. You're gonna ask the people around him. You're gonna ask the other people in your department. Probably again, not the answer that's probably gonna get you the job though. And so yeah, maybe being could just a little say too wisdom literal.
1: Wisdom of crowds. I, I just survey the whole front office and <laughs> we do the most popular thing.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I have d- I've done a bad job
1: with this question. <laughs> All right. Well I, yeah. you're no guy fiery. No.
0: It's it's a, it's also it's a quantitative analyst position. Mm,
1: that's and so true. Yeah.
0: It might be that the answer needs to be, it needs to have some like quantitative analyst uh, keywords in there, some jargon. It, yeah, may, Maybe this is not the, the philosopher, the quantitative philosopher position.
1: Just because you're limited to a 250 word answer doesn't mean you can't do a whole lot of research and analysis and dial it down to 250 words. You can just say, I studied the entire history of this and that and here's the average expected yeah. war for these guys <laughs> and you can just summarize your findings in 250 words but actually do an unlimited amount of work so Mm. that's an option that's
0: probably the right way to do it it. (laughs) yeah all right so anyway we're here to talk about Mike Trout Mm -hmm. Mike Trout's season is over sadly very sadly he will probably not lead the league in home runs that is probably some bold ink that he will still have unchecked off although you know he he probably won't but Jorge Soler is one behind him, and strangely, behind Solaire, nobody is within seven home runs of Solaire. Mm. And so, you know, they have uh, 11 games left. Uh, yeah. But if he were to hit one, Travis yeah, would you still, still get the, get the batting. Yeah. yeah. So that's conceivable. He will. Uh, he already lost his bolding for hit by pitches. He was leading yesterday, but he is no longer. Oh, um, that was on the that was on the bingo card.
1: Oh, and
0: he will probably not lead the league in WAR this year, which will be the third year in a row. In his first, obviously, like he's been just as good. Part of the reason that he has not led the league in WAR the past three years is one that Mookie Betts had the best season. By anybody since uh, Bonds And this year He might only be behind Cody Bellinger So I guess he would lead the league, the American league But uh, Mm -hmm. he's behind Cody Bellinger, who's having an extraordinary year
1: At baseball reference At baseball reference Yeah, at Fangraphs, he's like almost a win and a half ahead of Bellinger still
0: Is he ahead of everybody else by just as much?
1: Yes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: But yeah, I don't know It's just, uh, this is now the third year in a row that he has missed some time. Uh, this is again a situation. I think in all but maybe one of those cases, it's a situation where the fact that the Angels are not in it is a big part of the reason that the Angels, the Angels being not great, is not only costing us Mike Trout postseason games, but it's probably costing us regular mike trout games because i think yeah. mike trout he said he would have played if they were in a race they're 14 games under 500 now by the way like that the, you had just written the article about how they were the hundredest team of all time <laughs> yeah we should look up what day it is that you ran that <laughs> article
1: <laughs> they haven't won since then
0: there they were since they were at 62 and 64 they have now gone six and eighteen. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so uh, that's costing us real Mike Trout games. Uh, I don't know. I think w- the plan was we were going to just briefly talk about Mike Trout's season. That it was going to be a Mike Trout season in review or something like that. And so the kind of it's it is the, the same sort of story. It is, he is an absolute joy to watch play. He does things in individual accomplishments that are unprecedented and unmatched throughout baseball. And yet it feels a little bit kind of gross that we only have individual accomplishments to talk about, that we're so focused on his individual individual accomplishments and what this means for his, his war and what this means for his MVP case and what this means for his bold ink, because that's that is still sadly just that's all there is. That's all mm-hmm. that That's all there is right now And so you end up feeling a bit ambivalent At the end of each season
1: Yeah, I mean I'd probably still feel pretty positive About it if it weren't ending this way And unfortunately It's not just Trout as we talked about last week We've got a bunch of season Ending or regular season ending Injuries for stars And a lot of other players in pennant races Now you've got Anthony Rizzo Whose regular season seems to be done So that's unfortunate And with Trout Because all you have with him these days is the war, essentially, and the league-leading stats, it's sad to be deprived of that. It's sad that that's the best possible outcome, is that he has good stats because the Angels have not been good enough to get him to October. But now, because all we're hanging on is the war and the accumulation of milestones, it's disappointing to be deprived of that. And over these past three seasons... He's played 388 games from 2017 to 2019. That means he has missed just a little bit more than 20% of the Angels games over that period. And of course, almost no one plays 162 games and no one does that every year. But it is disappointing that the best player perhaps ever at what seems to be the peak of his powers thus far has had about a fifth of his playing time lopped off by various injuries and maybe exacerbated by the Angels not contending. And and so his not playing through those injuries, although who knows if he would be able to play at the same level if he tried to. I mean, the way that this most recent injury was described, it sounded very painful, and I know he was playing through it for a while, and then it got to the point where he just had to have this cryo ablation to correct his Morton's neuroma, two terms that I definitely knew a week ago, (laughs) but this is a, a very painful nerve that just kept flaring up, and it would go away and come back. But then it stopped going away and it was just bothering him all the time to the point where when he was just walking around, it hurt. When he takes himself out of the lineup, then you know that it's probably pretty bad. So I don't know that he would have kept up his pace if, if he had played through this. But I would like, of course, to see this player maximize his potential stat amassing And he's hardly like the first player. I mean, we've seen so many players who you look at their peaks and you think, oh, if only he hadn't missed that season or if he had been a little more durable or, of course, people who've missed time to go to war. I mean, you look at Ted Williams' career and the blank lines on his baseball reference page and you wonder what his stats would have looked like. So there are a lot of guys in that camp. But, of course, Trout and his success brings me great joy. It's my favorite ongoing story in baseball. And the more he plays, the funner the facts get. So I really wish that he would play full seasons, even if it wouldn't lead to a playoff berth. At least it would lead to 10 war years, and that's something to delight in at least.
0: Yeah. He was on pace for 10 before he started missing time. And this was, by the way, this was the first year of his career where he had an OPS over a thousand every month, which is a pretty Mm. incredible thing when you think about it. It's not unprecedented. There are, I mean, you know, there were years where Babe Ruth and and Barry Bonds had OPSs over 1300, over 1400 for the year. And so they, they did the same thing, but still over a thousand every month. It is incredible, but yeah, he, you know, he, He stole three bases in the final three months of the season. His I don't I don't exactly know how much of this to attribute to the foot, but his defensive WAR dropped by about uh, five runs over the past month, and so there was it. It it seemed clear that you know he was not at one hundred percent. And I think we've talked about, but I have speculated. I mean, this is an an unusual case, but I've speculated that he is often not at one hundred percent by the end of the year. That if you look at his his month by month stats, August and September are are definitely his worst months in his career. September is is worse than August, and if you uh, look at his uh, traditionally his stolen base totals in those months, although uh, yeah, I think if you do it by game, his stolen base rates go down in the second half. His caught stealing rate goes up, and so it so, sort of suggests that the way that he plays the. Uh, intensity that the physical intensity that he has when he plays and the, um, the amount of mass that he carries around, it might take something out of him. And that is no impediment in any way to him being the best player in baseball. But as these things start to add up and as you uh start to sort of wonder about his durability a little bit and um you know note note his age and you start to worry about it it mm-hmm. it just makes it very easy to well like so I was just talking to a friend the other day about how when you're like when you're twenty, something hurts and it just it hurts, and then you forget about it and then it it heals, but when you're forty or you know in in your thirties. Then when something hurts, you think, oh, is this forever? Like you get really scared because you have this twinge of pain in your hip and you think, oh no, am I now, am I, is it 50 years now of this hip pain? <laughs> and you you're like you're really obsessed with that hip pain for the you know couple days that you have it until it goes away. And then you breathe this huge sigh of relief because it is no longer you can no longer take for granted. That it's just going to heal, that it's just going to go away. You mm-hmm. like some people live with hip pain for fifty years, yeah. and like there's uh, this is not a big deal. This foot thing, none of these mm-hmm. things with Mike Trout have been big deals. These have been majestic seasons. They've been incredible. The last three years have been as good as anything he's ever done. Yeah. I'm and greedy. Yet, <laughs> I want more. I'm I'm not greedy so much as I'm I'm frightened. I'm just a easily <laughs> I'm easily scarable. And I guess it's greedy too I'm worried about Yeah, I don't know I'm I'm worried about it But not, not too worried But a little bit worried
1: Yeah, when I first read about this injury I thought, oh, this sounds like something that could linger and, and bother him in the future But it seems that's not the case Because he's having surgery to just remove this troublesome nerve And so it won't be able to trouble him anymore But yeah, you do kind of worry Because he's had this succession of injuries So he had what was it? The wrist was one year and then the thumb, which he had to have surgery on. and, And that was just a sliding into a base injury. And this, I don't know if there was anything in particular that prompted this or if it's just something that happened. I forget whether the wrist was just, what was that? Just one swing that something went wrong or was that a sliding injury? I don't know. But none of these is really connected in any way. And it's that conversation we always have about players who have a bunch of injuries and you wonder well is this person just injury prone or if it's not the same body part getting hurt again and again then does that actually mean anything does it tell us anything holistic about this player's ability to heal or to resist injuries and i don't think we're at that point with trout where we have to start talking about him as an injury prone player really but It's three years when I wanted him to play every single game. Just a selfish reason, like I'm going to the Yankees-Angels game on Tuesday, just as a fan with some friends. And one of the reasons why we picked this particular game is because the Angels are in town. And we thought, oh, well, we'll see Mike Trout. We'll see Shohei Otani. And now we're (laughs) not going to see either of those. We're just going to see the Troutless and Otani-less Angels. I can't wait. But... That is uh, personally disappointing for me, but obviously as someone who obsesses over his stats, that's the really disappointing thing. And of course, as we discussed with Jelic last week, there is some possibility that this costs Trout some hardware and an MVP award. I think he is... In a better position than Jelic is when it comes to maintaining that lead. But depending on the war you look at, Bregman's only about a win behind, right? Maybe less at baseball reference now less, and a little yeah. more at fan graphs. And mm-hmm. so it's possible that he could close that gap. And even if he doesn't completely close that gap, he is on a playoff team. So it and is,
0: and plays every day. You know, yeah, he played, right. Played, he's going to end up with 158 games, or 100 yeah, and something he's games.
1: finished strong. Whereas Trout, sort of, well, he isn't finishing at all. He finished early and wasn't quite at his peak self before he was lost for the rest of the season. Whereas Bregman is kind of making his case late in the year. Trout maybe solidified himself as an MVP candidate this year early, just because he was lapping everyone. And no one was close to him for like half the season. It, it just seemed like a fate accompli that Trout would be the MVP this year, no matter how the Angels did. But at this point, that is very much in question. And I don't care that much anymore about Trout and MVP awards because – He's already lost some that he should have won. He's won a couple, so he's on the board. And it's not like it's going to cost him a Hall of Fame berth or something like that. So really, all that matters is you look back at the baseball reference page, and I think it will speak for itself regardless of how many MVP awards he has there. If he has fewer than he should, that just reflects on the voters. But I think we've passed the point where – we would actually knock down Trout or or certainly I would knock down Trout because he didn't win as many MVP awards as other guys have. So I I want him to win when he deserves to win. But if he doesn't this year and Bregman ends up with like the same war and people pick the playoff guy, then I won't be able to raise a a huge objection to that because Bregman's been great too.
0: I think Bregman's, I don't know, I kind of think Bregman's going to win. I think that voters like to vote if 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 they can they prefer to vote for somebody who they didn't vote for last year you know mm-hmm. like they, they I think there's a little bit of a bump you get for not having one you know the previous year and Trout didn't win the previous year but Trout has won and he's you're always voting for Trout and uh that's not a reason not to vote for him but I think that there is a little bit of that but so when I I don't follow other sports that closely and but I'm I'm I always have this almost Childlike fascination with knowing how good certain stars are, and so like I will often text a friend of mine who knows all the sports and say, you know, so and so is the, you know, how, where does he rank all all time? And I'm I really want it to be like eighth, and then I get a little bummed when he's like thirty fifth or something like that. And I'll go to their basketball reference page or their football reference page, and I'll look for the the sure signs of greatness. And I'll look at like the MVP results or I'll like look at at his at somebody's purr and then I'll go to Michael Jordan's purr and be like, ooh. <laughs> and I don't really know. I don't know if there's a era adjustment to purr. And so I don't even know if I'm doing the right thing. But, you know, I, I like to feel like when I'm watching somebody who's great that I'm watching somebody who's the greatest or who's really great. And so I, I have uh, in this, uh, it's again, it's very childlike, but like I really love looking at a player's page and being just like, ooh. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine that there are a lot of people who do that with Mike Trout. They know that Mike Trout's great. They hear all about it. They hear that he's the best player in baseball. It's gotten through to them that he's the best player in baseball. They've they've you know they read one out of the 20 articles that each yeah. of us write a year and they get it. Like they get it. Mike Trout's the best player in baseball. And they want to know how great he is. And so they go and they look at things like his MVP finishes, and they see that he's won two, and that's pretty good. And that you know he finishes second and uh, second every other year, which really drives home that he's the you know the, maybe the best player in baseball. But you're not necessarily you could come away thinking that he's the greatest of all time, but you could also come away not thinking that. Thinking you know that you need to text your friend and ask like where is he? Where does he rank? Do do you care about that? Does it does it matter to you that? sort of non-baseball fans that you're just sort of your general sports fan who doesn't really love baseball, but is aware of it in the same way that I'm aware of, you know, the Warriors, is putting Mike Trout in some sort of historical context and might get it wrong, or does it just not matter to you as long as the, the the true baseball fans
1: get it? Mm. I think it matters to me a little bit. It's a little like what you say sometimes about how part of the reason why we care about things is because everyone else cares about them. I care about Mike Trout regardless. I think of whether the casual mainstream American knows or cares about Mike Trout, but I would like his greatness to be recognized. I'd like people to acknowledge that he's off to the best start of a career anyone's ever had, and we've all written that. Countless times, and so I care a little bit, but uh, I'm kind of past the point of stressing over it too much. If someone discounts his accomplishments,
0: and I would just like to say one more time that the we talk about how the Angels are are wasting Mike Trout because they can't get to the playoffs. They're trying, obviously. They're trying their best. It's not like they're punting seasons or anything like that. It's not like they're run by the Will Ponds. They're doing their best, and it just hasn't worked out for. For various, you know, various reasons over the years. But when we say that they're wasting Mike Trout, I think what we kind of mean is, oh, it's a bummer that we don't get to see Mike Trout in this specific context that is so exciting of October, and we don't get to see him reach, we have not yet gotten to see him reach that final, you know, that final accomplishment in his career. But... As a person who, you know, goes to Angels games and lives in Southern California, there is nothing wasted about Mike Trout in Southern California as a, if you think of baseball as a regional sport and think about Mike Trout as being sort of a, uh, of the territory of Southern California baseball fandom, uh, it is just a total joy that I see in Angels fans, like constantly, they like, they are so much, what I'm saying is they are so much happier that their 68 and 82 team has Mike Trout Mm -hmm. than they would be if their 60 and 88 team or 60 and 90 team didn't have Mike Trout. The difference is like it is entire. It is like on one end, you have a non-product. You have a season that is not worth tuning into at all. In another, you have one that you can just bank it. Like you can go to any game during the season and as long as Mike Trout is playing, it is going to be a pretty good time. You are going to get to see... You know a decent enough team With a great player and Who is a great franchise player and an icon In Southern California and so I don't want to say that his career is wasted in any way by him being in Southern California by him being on the Angels it's it's a a very narrow way of of using that term
1: yeah it does concern me though that I look forward and can't even really project him getting to the playoffs Uh, not that the Angels have been so terrible but they just have so little pitching and it seems like so little pitching on the way that I just don't know how next year is gonna be any different unless they have some wild off season where they're signing Garrett Cole and Steven Strasberg or, or something. I just I don't know how it happens for him next year and well, once you look forward into the future no one knows anything.
0: Yeah, they have I mean there's not that much left on their payroll though, right? They're, they're no. getting to, to yeah pretty clear I don't know if they're I don't know if the idea is that they've cleared all these terrible contracts now they're going to go give six year deals to big free agents. maybe they decide that they won't do that. but it is not nearly the hamstrung organization that it was two or three years ago. Mm-hmm. And they have I, I, I don't exactly know specifically how good their system is right now like is it a, are we talking? is it number one or is it like number six?
1: I think it's, I looked this up when I was writing, I think it was like 11th or something, according Mm -hmm. to Fangraphs, not too long ago, but not a lot of pitchers who are at high levels and highly touted who are on the way, say, next year. So I don't know, It's helps going to have to come from outside the organization, which it can, I think. But yeah, that kind of concerns me because once you go a few more years, then maybe Trout isn't incredible force that he's been at some point in there and then you have to make up that deficit too. And then we don't get to see Trout in his prime in the playoffs, which I would like to see.
0: When we talked about depressing seasons from stars uh, a couple weeks ago, Matt Trueblood pointed out that Justin Upton is a very good answer to that question, too. And one of the things that's been so frustrating for the Angels over the past few years, I mean, it's never been one contract or two contracts like they haven't been all that close for the last four years or so. But it just feels like every time a big contract expires, it seems like another they they have another player sort of age into the decline years, and mm-hmm. their payroll is is definitely every year like three more of these things go away, um, and you think oh now they have a lot of money, but then you know. They've just had a, a series of players in their 30s kind of quickly get old, and I did not expect that from Justin Upton. Justin Upton was doing very well for them. He was a he he seemed to be a great trade, and then a great re-signing, and then this year was just kind of a lost year for him. And their outlook obviously looks a lot different when you think of Justin Upton as a as a one win player instead of a you know a four or five win player, and so that's kind of partly what just keeps making it hard to to project forward although like you say it's also been about pitching for the last six years they've mm-hmm. they've net they've had it just a series of pitchers who seem like if five of them got healthy at one time they'd have a pretty good gang and instead one of them is always healthy at, mm-hmm. at one time yeah uh, Cole Calhoun by the way is a pretty good can you believe he has 31 home runs guy oh too. yeah
1: that's a good one mm-hmm. huh. Albert Pujols will have played more games for the Angels over the past three years than Mike Trout. <laughs> wow. Pujols is up to, I think, 386 games now since 2017, and Trout is stuck at 388. So Pujols huh. will pass him soon. Wouldn't have guessed that.
0: No. Wow. Wow.
1: <laughs> yeah. Huh. Oh. Fun fact, I guess. Made oh. you say, wow. Not really that fun, but <laughs> all right. All right. Well, we paid tribute. To Mike Trout's season. We laid it to rest and we hope that we will get a full, healthy one from him next year. Yep. Alright that will do it for today In a way I wonder whether it's better for Mike Trout's MVP case if the Angels Just lose out without him Because occasionally you get people making the case That well how good can Mike Trout be If the Angels aren't that good with him That's sort of a misunderstanding of how Baseball works and how much difference any one Player can make but if the Angels just Go winless without Mike Trout for the rest Of the season maybe that makes the case for How good he was to just prop them up To a 500-ish team On the other hand the worse they get and the further they are out of the race. Maybe the more that makes people want to vote for Bregman, just to go with a winner. Though really, if you want to pick the player who was most pivotal and put his team in the playoffs, that might end up being Marcus Semien. We'll see. I should also note that after we recorded this episode, Jorge Soler did hit his 45th homer of the season, so he is now tied with Mike Trout for the league lead, with 11 games to go. So it's entirely possible that this year's home run titles will go to Jorge Soler and Eugenio Suarez, just as we all foresaw. The yelich Brewers, by the way, keep Winning every game Our guest on Friday's episode Will Leach Cardinals fan of course He described his state of mind As cautiously terrified When we talked to him At the end of last week And at that time The Cardinals had a four game lead In the Central Now that's down to two games And they still have Seven games to go Against the Cubs So I bet if we were to ask Will Right now He would omit that cautiously And just say he was terrified But that's a pretty fun race Right now The Cardinals The Nationals The Cubs And the Brewers Jockeying for three playoff spots Essentially And yes some other teams on the periphery of that race you can support the podcast on patreon by going to patreon.com slash wild the following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount help keep the podcast going and help themselves by getting access to some perks patrick gibbs daryl Mulder. John Ford, Matthew Gardner, and Mark Montgomery. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebookcom effectively wild You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me, and Meg, and Sam coming via email at podcastatfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can buy my book, The MVP Machine: How Baseball's New Nonconformists Are Using Data to Build Better Players. Your reviews and ratings for the book are appreciated too. I'll be back next time with Meg. I think Meg and Sam are switching episodes the rest of this week. So we will talk to you then.
0: Oh no, you just can't win. There's no sense in suffering. As the rocks tumble and the earth slides to this me.